some approaches or at least um, concerns that might have been bipartisan in the past have become quite polarized now. And that makes it very difficult to think about policy and how to move forward. Welcome to Environmental Insights, a podcast from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavens, a professor here at the Harvard Kennedy School and director of the program. You know, I've had the pleasure of including in these podcast conversations over the past three years a significant number of leading environmental and resource economists. And today is no exception because I'm joined by Kathleen Segerson, the Board of Trustees Distinguished Professor of Economics at the University of Connecticut. Kathy is a member of the National Academy of Sciences and a fellow of the Association of Environmental and Resource Economists, as well as the Agricultural and Applied Economics Association and the Bayer Institute of Ecological Economics in Stockholm. In addition to having published 100 articles or so in scholarly periodicals and a half dozen books, she's been an editor or co-editor of leading academic journals in her area, and she's also served on numerous state, national, and international advisory boards. So welcome, Kathy. Thank you, Rob. It's a pleasure to be here, and I appreciate the invitation. Well, before we talk about your research and your current thinking about environmental and resource policy, let's go back to how you came to be where you are. So where did you grow up? I was born in a suburb of Chicago, uh, and then my family moved to the East Coast when I was about 10. So I pretty much grew up on the East Coast in Connecticut. Now I'm curious, what suburb of Chicago, since I grew up in Chicago? Oh, well, we lived in Villa Park. <laughs> I'm embarrassed to say I don't know where Villa Park is. Where? What direction would it be from downtown Chicago? It would be west. West. Oh, okay. Near Elmhurst. <laughs> Elmhurst, I vaguely remember. And so then primary and high school for you were in Connecticut. Is that right? That's correct. Yes. And college, you didn't go terribly far away. You went up to Dartmouth. I did go to Dartmouth. I was um, there in the 1970s, so it was a time when Dartmouth had just gone co-ed, so uh-huh. it was an, in- an interesting time to be at Dartmouth in those days. <laughs> so uh, so two questions. One is I want to know what your your major was, but also what was it like to be apparently like one of the first women students at Dartmouth College? Well, it was an interesting dynamic, to say the least. Um, At that time, there were relatively few women on campus. I think the ratio was maybe 10 to 1 or so at the time. So um, it was was a time when women were just getting established there. And of course, today it's quite different. The balance is quite different. And there's now a female president at Dartmouth. So Mm -hmm. uh, women have come a long way, obviously, in that institution as well as as more generally. And what did you major in at Dartmouth? Um, I was an undergraduate math major. So uh-huh. interest, interestingly, I took absolutely no economics as an undergraduate. Uh, and so I was totally focused on math and abstract math and very different from what I do today in some sense, but in other ways, very much related to what I do today. 
You know, what, what you're mentioning has actually been a theme with many of the people that I've had conversations with in this podcast series from academia. And, and I'm talking about academic economists. Namely, they did not study economics as an undergraduate. That, by the way, includes me. And rather, they studied things such as mathematics and physics. So you're well positioned among that group. Well, I did find that um, having a math background was very helpful when I did make the change, did make the switch over to uh, to economics. So I, I do think that for people who are considering environmental economics as a profession, having a math background is an extremely valuable thing and, and perhaps even more valuable than having an undergraduate econ major. Now, did you go directly from Dartmouth to Cornell for your PhD degree? I did not. I spent um, almost two years actually working at the federal government. So I, um, as I said, I did not take any undergraduate economics courses, but I had the pleasure of meeting um, the good fortune, which changed my life in some sense, of mm -hmm. meeting Dennis and Daniela Meadows of Limits to Growth fame back in, back in those days. And um, as a result of that, I was able to get a position working down for the Congress for John Ding who was the chair of the Subcommittee on Energy and Power of the Commerce Committee back in the 1970s when the key issue was the National Energy Act. So it was um, very uh, timely, and I spent a couple of years there before going back to graduate school. You know, it's interesting that you worked for the Meadows um, of Limits to Growth fame, as you said, because to some degree, one of the things which actually stimulated quite a few economists to turn their attention to environment and resources, which they hadn't previously, was really to respond to the Limits to Growth book, um, because many economists had problems with it. Yeah, that's right. There were a lot of criticisms of the assumptions that were built into some of the models that they were using. Um, but for me, it was more about just asking the questions. What mm -hmm. were the questions that they were asking and thinking about how to blend um, analytical methods with environmental questions? And so for me, that was very, you know, very instrumental in terms of getting me thinking about that as a possible career path. So after that couple of years, you went on to Cornell to do your PhD. Was that in economics, or was that in the what used to be called the agricultural economics department? It was in the agricultural economics department. So actually, when I went to Cornell, I didn't go there with the intention of going to graduate school. My husband was going up there, and I was looking for a job. But um, I was put in touch with one of the faculty members in the Ag Econ department. Mm -hmm. I, I actually, at that point, didn't even know there was such a thing as environmental or, or agricultural economics. But he introduced me to the to the field and told me that I could become a graduate student. And in, in that program, I could blend my mathematical background with my interest in environmental issues. And uh, and so I did. And so that launched me on that part of my, you know, my graduate studies at Cornell, first in, as, in a master's program, not immediately in a Ph.D. program. But then I stayed on uh, and did the Ph.D. there as well. So you got there in 1979? Uh, yes. So that's interesting. I, I didn't. I don't know if we've talked about this before, but you know, I did a master's degree in agricultural economics in that same department, and before I went on for PhD here at Harvard. And I believe, 
best of my recollection, that I received the master's degree in 1979. Oh, well, we may have just missed each other there then. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So you enrolled in the September of that year, is that right? That's right. Yeah, yes. and I, I, I probably graduated in May or June of the same year. How interesting. So uh, what was your dissertation topic and your dissertation chair or committee or advisor, whatever? Well, I was actually a student of Tim Mount. Who oh, of course. More, more of an energy economist than an and environmental e economist. And an excellent econometrician. Yes, very much so. Um, and Dwayne Chapman, you may yes, recall Dwayne of Chapman course, from of your course. days there. Yeah, Dwayne was actually the one who uh, got me into the program and got mm -hmm. me you know, to, to think about that as a possible field. For my dissertation, I worked on uh, um, transboundary pollution, mm -hmm. thinking about the relationship between the um, emissions that were happening in Canada and what was happening in the U.S. and the impact of that on trade. So it was really about transboundary pollution and trade. I did a large, I guess you would call it a computable general equilibrium model, although mm -hmm. in the day, back in the day um, I was working on that. I don't think it was as sophisticated, certainly, as the ones that we have today, but that was that was the general topic of my dissertation. So I certainly knew uh, Tim Mount, and I worked with him a bit. My ch my committee chair, just for the master's degree, uh, was Ken Robinson. Oh, yes. Who we've sadly lost many years back. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that Dwayne Chapman has also sadly passed away. Isn't that right? That is correct. Yeah, yes. but Tim Mount is very much with us. He's retired, of course. Yes. But, um, he's still, I believe, active to some extent in the department and in the profession. Uh, works very closely or did work very closely with a lot of the um, utilities in New York State. Yes. So you graduated in 1984 with a PhD from Cornell. Uh, what was your first position out of graduate school? My first position was in the what was called the Ag Econ Department at that time at mm -hmm. the University of Wisconsin. So I was recruited, if you will, by um, Dan Bromley, mm -hmm. who is, of course, a well-known environmental yep. economist who works more on property rights and institutional issues. But he was instrumental in um, getting me to the University of Wisconsin. So I spent a relatively short time there, only about two years, because mm -hmm. for personal reasons, I wanted to be back on the East Coast. And, mm -hmm. and so that um, I, I made the move from the Ag Econ Department at the University of Wisconsin to the Economics Department at the University of Connecticut. Now, tell us about that. Was there a – the culture – must have been somewhat different. I don't mean Wisconsin versus Connecticut, although that also, <laughs> but rather going from an ag econ department to an economics department. Can you say something about that experience? It was quite a quite a change, um, particularly, I'm sure, as you know, Rob, back in those days, there was much more of a separation, I think, between mm -hmm. ag econ and economics. Um, ag econ, um, the, the training was very much on the micro side, of course, and mm -hmm. in the economics departments, they didn't really know much about people who had been trained in agricultural economics. But many of the people who worked on environmental issues were coming out of ag econ departments in those days. That's mm -hmm. not 
true, not true, of course, today. Mm -hmm. um, today, it's very, very different. But, um, you know, there was, of course, a, a very applied um, emphasis in ag econ, more so, I would say, than in, in economics. Um, although, of course, I do a fair amount of theory. So in that sense, I was a bit of, a, of an outlier within ag econ. Mm -hmm. um, but they, it really is a much more... Um, focused in, in that time on applied work, on policy, um, and of course on agriculture initially and land mm -hmm. types of issues, more so than say air quality issues. Right. So you, you joined the faculty uh, in Connecticut in the Department of Economics as an assistant professor, and then through a series of promotions to your uh, named chair today. And then somewhere along the line, isn't it right that you started up a joint appointment with the Department of Agricultural and Resource Economics at Connecticut? I do have a courtesy appointment there, I would describe Oh, I as see. Okay. More. They yeah. don't pay any of my salary, but what it does allow me to do is to serve as a major advisor for students in that department. And so that has been very, um, very rewarding. I've had a couple of students come out of that department who were mm -hmm. advisees of mine um, that, that having that appointment, that affiliate appointment over there allows for that. And unlike some universities, we have quite a close relationship between the two departments here at the University of Connecticut. Now, so let's turn to your work in the world of environmental and resource economics scholarship before we turn to policy. Um, you already mentioned uh, one change that's taken place over the years since you received your PhD degree in 1984, that's almost 40 years ago. So you have seen some significant changes in the scholarly world, which I would love to hear your thoughts on, whatever they are. And certainly one of them I want you to uh, comment on is the role of women in the profession, in graduate school, uh, on faculties, but anything else as well. Well, I think it's certainly notable, and I'm not the only person to note this, that there has been quite a shift within environmental economics from work that was very much theory-based back, mm -hmm. you know, in the late 1970s, early 1980s, because there there really were not good data sets to, to look at um, some of the questions that we were interested in empirically and so and so there really was a much more of a focus on theory than than I think there is today we've of course developed methods and data sets that have allowed for people to study questions in ways that simply wasn't possible um, back then um, I, I've argued in in other places that I think maybe we've gone a little too far in relying only on the empirical mm -hmm. um, analysis these days. I'd like to see us swing the pendulum back just a little bit toward toward more theory. But um, I think that is a very noticeable change that we've seen in the profession. And then, of course, the other one I mentioned was um, bringing in people who trained in economics as opposed to coming out of ag econ departments. So people who are coming out of fields like IO, public, um, even institutional or, or labor, or even macroeconomists who are, who are using those other fields in economics to then look at environmental problems because they of course intersect with so many fields so that i think has been a, been a real change i've seen mm -hmm. that i've seen my health economist colleagues and my labor economist colleagues also working on environmental issues um, coming at it of course from their their lenses 
And what about women, both in graduate school and on the faculty in various institutions? Well, I think that what I've experienced is something that is is not uncommon, which is that there are a lot of women in graduate programs. Mm-hmm. Um, that percentage of women in PhD programs is much higher than the percentage of female full professors. And mm-hmm. so we have seen that um, kind of unfortunate loss of, you know, PhD academic women um, as we move up the ranks. And that, of course, is is really unfortunate for a variety of reasons. I don't need to, to tell you that. Um, but, but I've witnessed that as well. You know, I never felt in graduate school, even though I came from Dartmouth where, you know, as an undergraduate, women were, were certainly a minority in that day. But in graduate school, I didn't feel that. And the number of contributions that women have been making are just, you know, incredibly significant. Uh, so it's really we've I've been part of writing a couple of papers recently, trying to highlight some of those contributions. Um, and so mm-hmm. I think a lot of that is is being recognized now. Um, but we still have a lot of biases, and I think subtle and implicit biases um, that affect women in the profession. But I, I would think, now I don't have the data in front of me, that among the various subfields of economics, one of the fields that has the largest share of uh, women faculty, possibly including at the tenured level, would be environmental and resource economics, no? I believe that's true, yes. Yeah. So I do think that we are a field where um, a lot more progress has been made um, and where there's much more representation by women, yes. So l- let me ask you, you know, again, looking back over these 40 years, y- you no doubt made a series of decisions, as we all do in life. And I'm focusing on the professional decisions, not the personal and family decisions. And I'm wondering, as you look back on that, um, is there anything, if you had it to do over again, you know, is there anything that you might have done a little differently? And of course, that you're willing to share in what is a very public forum in this podcast. I like the type of topics that I've worked on. I really like the kind of methods that I've used. Mm-hmm. But if I had to do it over again, I would perhaps have um, developed better uh, training in econometrics than I hmm. cur- currently have. And I think that is something that's in some sense specific to someone who has been around for a long time because now the training in econometrics of, of students is of course extremely good. So I think that um, I I feel as though maybe I missed out on that a little bit, not through any fault of anybody's, but just because of the time during which I, you know, was was essentially um, having you know my training, my early career. I didn't put as much emphasis on that as perhaps I should have. But that's also because you chose to start out really focusing on theory, no? That is true. That is true. But I think I could have pivoted. I'm not saying I would have I wanted see. to have pivoted, but yeah, I, right. I could have pivoted a bit more with as the profession pivoted to be more empirical. I, I could have followed that. I, I didn't. I, I don't know if I regret that, but it's certainly something that might have changed the type mm-hmm. of work that I do. Now, before we turn to the policy world, I want to ask you just a bit more about your research and writing. Um, I know this is like asking you to identify your favorite child, but if yeah. if there's one research publication that you would hold up as the one that you're most proud of, 
what what would it be? Well, this is probably not the kind of answer you might have expected, but I recently published a review paper mm -hmm. in the um, annual review of resource economics that mm -hmm. synthesizes work on collective approaches. Mm -hmm. And um, the reason that I really like this paper personally <laughs> is because it brings together issues that I've been interested in for the past 40 years. So I see. stretching all the way back to work I did on agricultural nonpoint pollution way back in in the in the 1980s, um, and then moving on from that to to the work some work I've done on joint and several liability work mm -hmm. on voluntary approaches work on uh, payments for ecosystem services work on fisheries. In doing all of that work, I didn't realize it at the time, but there's actually a common structure to many of those problems that I tried to pull out in some of this recent work that synthesizes um, some of those approaches. So for me, I, I really enjoy seeing the common threads across different, what seem to be quite you know disparate contexts. Mm -hmm. and. In that paper, I, I was able to to do that for in, in some sense for my own benefit as much as anybody else. Sure. <laughs> so turning to current times, Kathy, uh, in regard to environmental and resource policy, what are what are some of your greatest concerns? That could either be in terms of naming policy issues or in terms of areas that you're particularly interested in following yourself. Well, I think, of course, we have all types of problems that everyone is well aware of um, and for which we don't really have good solutions right now. And mm -hmm. so, of course, the climate area is one that um, you've worked extensively yeah. on and know the challenges there. I think that it is really quite concerning how um, polarized we are now in this country, at least, mm -hmm. on some of these issues, um, some approaches or at least um, concerns that might have been bipartisan in the past have become quite polarized now. And that makes it very difficult to think about policy and how to move forward. Um, and we have, I mean, one of the things that we've done, of course, recently is to um, enact the um, Inflation Reduction Act, which includes a lot of climate measures. Many of those are subsidy based. And, yes. you know, as you know, Economists wouldn't typically be <laughs> looking to subsidies as right. the uh, as the ideal kind of policy instrument to use to try to to foster transformational change. Um, so where where that goes, I don't know. That that I think is is a concern because mm -hmm. it, it sets you know it sets a precedent for for policy. It obviously has large budgetary implications. Mm -hmm. um, we'll see whether those subsidies can be effectively phased out if and when no longer needed. Let's hope they're no longer needed at some point, that they've been sufficiently successful, that that they aren't needed um, in the future. But, but that's an area where I think it's really um, potentially, you know, quite concerning and we'll, we'll see how effective those, those policies um, will be going forward. Yeah, I recently saw an estimate of the implicit marginal abatement cost uh, per unit of CO2 uh, of the various subsidies in the Inflation Reduction Act, and then compared that to the uh, level of a carbon tax, for example, a carbon pricing mechanism that would achieve the same aggregate 
uh, abatement cost, and the ratio was close to an order of magnitude. It was close to 10 to 1. So it's it's very costly to use these subsidies, which is what you were suggesting. So I'd like to know your reaction to something that has been striking, uh, at least to me it's been striking over the last few years, and that's increasing attention in both the policy world and the scholarly world uh, of environmental resource economics to what's often labeled environmental justice or just transition. These frequently in the case of climate change policy, but not exclusively. I'd like to know what's your reaction to that increased degree of attention? Well, I think it is It is certainly warranted. Um, the challenge, of course, is what to do about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I am currently serving on a committee for the National Academy of Sciences that is um, charged with helping the um, CEQ in the development of their CGEST tool, which is I believe CGES stands for Climate Economic Justice Tool, mm-hmm. and it's designed to help the administration implement the um, Justice 40 initiative, which mm-hmm. seeks right. to, yes, as you know, probably seeks to ensure that a certain amount of investment goes to communities that are identified as um, disadvantaged in some way. Um, the tricky part, the challenge is identifying those communities, um, which communities should be considered um, eligible for helping to meet the Justice 40 goals. How do you define that? How do you measure it? Um, Of course, the challenges are very different across different communities. So how do you compare? How do you calculate cumulative burdens? So there are a lot of, I think, challenges associated Mm -hmm. with implementing policies to try to address um, the environmental justice concerns that that are out there and obviously very legitimate need to be need to be addressed and as as i'm sure you know the uh recently proposed uh changes to circular a4 of the office of information regulatory affairs oira at the office of management and budget which would be the first changes in since 2003 in the essentially the guidelines for carrying out benefit cost analysis in the proposals were a set of means of doing a better job of measuring for purposes of RIA's uh, distributional impacts. And that's the first step, of course, is being yeah. able to measure measure right. the disparities. Now, I want to ask you, uh, finally, your reaction to one other change that we've seen recently, and it's uh, less in the analytical world and more in the rest of the universe, and that's the youth movements of climate activism. They're most prominently associated with the name Greta Thunberg, but it's much broader than that. I know when I uh, observe my own students at my university, um, I've noticed a tremendous rise, not just in intellectual attention to climate change, but in terms of climate activism, not unlike earlier periods of activism going way back on the Vietnam War and the like. I would love to know what are what's your reaction to these youth movements? Well, I think that certainly one can question some of the tactics that are being used mm-hmm. um, to draw attention yep. to the issue. Um, but I think that uh, we need the young generation to be the ones who are 
in some sense, uh, drawing increased attention because the older generations, at least some parts of them, are are not um, stepping up to that challenge. And, mm-hmm. you know, I I know that myself, my, my children are in their 30s now, but mm-hmm. I have a granddaughter. Mm-hmm. And as I think about the future for her, um, I know that the people who are young parents now or teenagers or, or um, college students now, it's really, you know, about their future and their right to feel indignant that those of us who are much older are not doing what we, you know, can or should be doing to try to ensure that future. So I I do think that there's some hope, if you will, in the increased activism that we're seeing from that group of um, students and people in in that generation. Will it be enough? Maybe we need to wait until they are in positions where they can actually, you know, pass legislation and make those kinds of changes happen. I think, you know, at this point, they're they're sufficiently young that they can try to demand it, but actually putting it in place is is more challenging. So let's hope that they can translate that activism or that it does translate into some real, real change at some point. So that's a great note of hope on which to bring this conversation to a close. So thank you very much, Kathy, for having taken time to join us today. My pleasure, Rob. Thanks again for having me. So my guest today has been Kathleen Segerson, the Board of Trustees Distinguished Professor of Economics at the University of Connecticut. Please join us again for the next episode of Environmental Insights, conversations on policy and practice from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavens. Thanks for listening. Environmental Insights is a production from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. For more information on our research, events, and programming, visit our website, www.heap.hks.harvard.edu.